0: Father, we thank you for this beautiful day that you have given to us, for this time that we can share together around the Word of God, and in fellowship one with another. We thank you, Lord, for the clear teaching of the Word, for the lives of these men and women who have lived so long ago from our perspective, and yet their lives are are as if they were just lived yesterday. And the truth that we glean from their lives is the same truth that applies to us today. So, Father, we ask that you might instruct us from your word today. We know, Father, that it is, we are totally dependent upon the Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts and minds and to give us understanding of your word. And so we submit to his authority today and pray that you will be magnified in our time together. In Christ's name, amen. Genesis chapter 12, I'd like to read verses 4 through 9 to begin with. Genesis 12, verses 4 through 9. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot his nephew and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. And Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on and continued towards the Negev. As we noted last week, Abram left Haran because he was impelled by what? By the word of God. God's word impelled him. And just from that, we we glean the truth that God's Word is a driving force. Scripture teaches us that the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, and it pierces into the very core of our being. Another place we're told that it's the Word of God that cleanses us. Word of God is crucial. The Word of God is to be obeyed, and so Abram obeys as God has spoken to him. Now, he doesn't have a written word to look to, but he has heard God speak directly to him. And so under that impulsion, he travels forth and and the scripture tells us that he takes Lot with him. And last week we speculated on why Lot went along with him. It should be noted that he went forth with a great caravan. We read in that passage, he had many possessions and he had many members of his household, not family members, but people that had been acquired along the way workers that served him in the herding of his animals and probably in the uh, caravan uh, organization which he may have operated. At least some speculate that he was a caravaneer. And he headed for Canaan. Now, he knew where Canaan was in general. He'd never been there before. But God didn't tell him where in Canaan he was to settle, and probably he wouldn't have known much more if God had said where because he had never been there before. We noted that the journey was approximately one of 500 miles, which to us is not a particularly difficult journey. But for him, everybody's on foot. Well, at least all the animals are on foot. And uh, you have to move at the pace of the slowest animal. And sheep and goats aren't particularly noted for their great speed. Cattle... Oh, we often watch the old Western, don't we? And we see the cattle being driven across the landscape and they're running lickety-split. Well, they don't do that very much because they lose a lot of weight when they do that. Uh, So the animals move very, very slowly. And so as I mentioned last week, probably a mile an hour. And if they move 10 hours a day, that's 10 miles a day. So it would have taken at least seven, eight weeks, depending on how much time they spent camped at each site Possibly it took several months to make this particular journey. We're told in this passage that he traveled through the land until he arrived at the place called Shechem. Now, Shechem will show up as an important site later in in Genesis, particularly in the life of Jacob. But Shechem is important in, in the New Testament sense, too, because it was the New Testament sychar, where Jesus sat at the well with a lady from Samaria and discussed with her uh, about himself and about the hill nearby Mount Gerizim where the Samaritans had built a temple because they were not allowed into the temple in Jerusalem. And uh, Jesus said to her, they that worship God don't worship here or there or in Jerusalem, but they worship God in spirit and in truth. And she seemed to to receive that and to have her eyes opened. And so it's at that spot where Abram has an encounter with God. God appeared to him, we're told, a theophany, a manifestation of God in some visible form, at least in this experience, apparently a visible form. And as a result of of this theophany, he built an altar. To worship the Lord. Now, the form God appeared in is not told, we're not told in this passage what form God appeared in, but we are told very clearly what the message was. And Abram's faith was tested as this message came to him from the Lord at Shechem. The, 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 the message was short and to the point To your descendants I will give this land. Not to you, but to your descendants. I will give this land. Interesting, Abraham makes this long journey of faith. A man of great wealth and great possession, he leaves behind everything of his past in terms of his friends and his relatives, except for Lot and his wife. And he moves to this new land, and now God tells him, You're not going to possess it literally yourself, you're not going to own this land but to your descendants I will give this land. He would spend most of his life living in Canaan on land, of course, which he did not own. He would own, at the point, uh, late in his life, he would own one spot of that land, one place in that land he would actually purchase. What place was that? Do you remember? Okay, the tomb, the cave at Machpelah, where he would bury Sarah, his wife. Where is Machpelah today? Yeah. <laughs> Good point. He said the same place it was then. <laughs> the logic of, a, logic of an English professor. <laughs> <laughs> Good, yes. Generally, though, it's considered to be <laughs> in Hebron, the city of Hebron. And uh, you, you can travel to what is supposed to be the site today and uh, see the great Herodian building that largely stands on the particular site of what is purported to be the cave of Machpelah. Now, as we have read in Hebrews chapter 11 about Abram, it says, By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise as an alien in the land of promise. To honor the Lord who had given him this message, although I'm sure the message wasn't particularly thrilling to him, Abram, we're told, built an altar there to worship God. And then he left Shechem. How long did he remain at Shechem? We don't know. But he left Shechem and traveled further south. We trust as he made this move, that he was following the leading of the Lord, right? That it was the Lord that was directing him to continue to move on. It doesn't say so in the passage. We're told that he camped on a hill. The hill was located between Bethel and what we call Ai, uh, Ie, or whatever it was called in those days. But on a hill between those two towns, villages, in the hill country, north of Jerusalem. Again, about a 30-mile journey from Shechem down to this hill site, probably taking at least three days, maybe a week. Uh, There's no reason he should have been in a hurry. It doesn't seem anyway. He followed the ridge route. Now, I I think I mentioned this last week, but if you can picture in your mind, and and if you have the map in front of you, you, you can look at it, north, well probably at Damascus, there is a branching of the, of the main highway that comes through here and one branch ran down the east side of the Jordan through the plateau on the east side of the Jordan called the King's Highway. And it traveled all the way down through uh, the land of the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Edomites and went down into the desert south of that. And then ultimately connected over to the main route into Egypt. The other route, if you were traveling down it, the right branch uh, would continue over to the southwest, would go across the top uh, north of the Sea of Galilee, past Hatzor or Hazor, if you like, and and then would cut across to Megiddo, a fortress town near the coast, and then move down the coast towards Egypt. This was called the Via Mars, or the Way of the Sea. So you have the King's Highway one side, the Way of the Sea or the Via Mars on the other side. In between was the ridge route, kind of a secondary road, not the main highway, because it simply linked these towns of far lesser importance uh, together and traveled down through the valleys of the hill country of Ephraim into Judea. And so that's the route he's on, apparently, traveling from Shechem down towards Bethel where he camped for an unrecorded length of time. And there he built another altar. And what's interesting is this, there's no statement made here that at this altar he again saw the Lord, or the Lord spoke to him, but we're told in the passage, rather, that as he built this altar, he called upon the name of the Lord. He proclaimed the name of the one he worshipped there on this hilltop. And in calling upon the name of the Lord, he was an example to immediately his household, to Lot, to his wife, to all the members of his household who certainly numbered several hundred or at least would later, if not yet. He was a testimony to the Canaanites, a witness to all of his descendants because it would be recorded. It would be carried on by word of mouth, of course, and then ultimately recorded centuries later by Moses. A witness to us. Abram there called upon the name of his Lord. A witness of what? Of the power of saving faith and saving prayer. Most of us are familiar with the uh, verse in Jeremiah 33. It's often... Quoted Jeremiah 33, 3. Call to me, and I will answer you, and will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. It reminds me of James, where the Scripture tells us that if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who grants wisdom liberally and will not berate us for asking for that wisdom. God makes it available to us because we don't know what to do in, in, often in situations. And so it was with Abram. Did he know what to do? Did God lay out the road map for him for years and years ahead? No, he simply said, go to Canaan. He didn't even tell him where in Canaan to go. We, we trust he was, as I said, being led by the Lord, and he certainly was to Shechem because the Lord appeared to him there. And as he moved south, we trust that that was God's leading, at least as far as this hill anyway. Call to me, and I will answer you, is God's promise. That was not only God's promise through Jeremiah, but it was obviously a truth that Abram understood. It's a universal truth of the Word of God in all times and in all places. In the New Testament, we see in Romans a statement relative to this too. In Romans chapter 10, verse 13, where it says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever comes in humility and in truth to bow before the Lord and call upon him will be saved. How then, the Scripture says, shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent, just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. Abram becomes the preacher. Abram becomes the one who is bringing good tidings into this land of darkness, the land of Canaan. As far as we're able to determine, the worship in Canaan was as benighted as any worship anywhere on planet earth has ever been, It's vile and cruel, particularly as it's exemplified later on in the worship of the Phoenicians and in their descendants, the, I'm sorry, yes, the Phoenicians and in the uh, Carthaginians of North Africa who were descended from them. A worship which involved human sacrifice. A worship in which much perversion took place. And so in, into this land comes this man of God, to, to be the witness of the true and the living God, called himself out of a pagan land. As we read already, the Scripture tells us that uh, uh, Abram's fathers worshipped other gods in the land beyond the river in Mesopotamia. And we know that the descendants, or even his relatives who lived in Haran, apparently, at least in part, were idol worshippers because later on, Laban is very concerned because Rachel runs off with his household idols. Hmm. Uh, bad thing to do, in his opinion. Now, Abram, from this spot where he has, he has proclaimed the name of the Lord, brought God's name into Canaan officially, if you will, from this point, he moves further south, towards the Negev, which means south or southland. Now, the Negev is a very interesting area. It's a semi-arid region in which you find, or at least on the borders of which you find, places such as Beersheba and Kadesh Barnea. Small towns, bigger towns today, at least Beersheba is. In this semi-arid region, hundreds and hundreds of square miles of relatively flat land, subject, however, to often fewer than five inches of precipitation per year, meaning that it's quickly converted into a desert if that five inches becomes one inch or two inches or no inches, which occasionally it did, and apparently will in the story as we read on. In good years, the Negev can be a profitable place in which crops, not crops, but at least animals, could be grazed. Modern day crops can be raised. The Israelis have worked all kinds of things out so that the desert blooms like the rose today. But in in days when the weather has not cooperated, it can become a hostile land and a land in which herds cannot survive. Let's read on and see what happens next in the latter part of chapter twelve, beginning at verse ten. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. And it came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And it will come about that when the Egyptians see you, that they will say, This is his wife. And they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. It came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore he treated Abram well for her sake, and gave him sheep and oxen, and donkeys, and male and female servants, and female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. Great man of faith. Paragon of virtue. A man without sin, right? He's living in the Negev. The grass is burning up. The water holes are drying up. Caravans coming through from Egypt, though, are saying, well, there's plenty in Egypt. The famine has not impacted Egypt. There's food. There's grasslands for the animals. And so Abram decided, we discover from this passage, to consider Egypt, to continue southward. Now, think for a minute. God said, go to Canaan. Is Egypt part of Canaan? No. Did God say, go to Canaan, then to Egypt, and back to Canaan? Apparently not. Probably not Abram's first mistake, nor his last. Now, the question is, if the famine was severe in the land, if the whole Levant, apparently, the eastern end of the Mediterranean, was suffering drought, which seems to be implied here, at least the the famine was severe in the Negev and in the adjacent areas of, of Canaan. It's not really that far to Egypt. And Egypt isn't particularly a a land of torrential rains. Why was there no famine in Egypt? Exactly, the Nile. The Nile is not dependent upon local rainfall. Egypt is not made fertile because of the rains which fall on Egypt. It rarely rains in Egypt. In fact, uh, one of the things that impressed us when we were there was, was looking at the trees and noticing that the leaves of the trees were heavy with dust, indicating it never rained to wash the dirt off the leaves. Made the trees kinda very dusky <laughs> color. Now, if you've ever studied the geography of this portion of Africa, you'll notice that the Nile River has two, two main branches and, and two sources. The White Nile, which is the longest branch, has as its source Lake Victoria. And of course, when they're trying to compute the ultimate length of the Nile River, which they call the longest river in the world, they they find the longest river that flows into Lake Victoria and call that the Nile too and chase it back to its origin. But anyway, Lake Victoria is the source of the White Nile. And it flows down through North Africa, Northeast Africa, on through the Sudan area and into Egypt. But in Sudan, the modern country of Sudan, it is joined by another branch called the Blue Nile. Now, the Blue Nile has its source in a lake also, a very small lake up in the Ethiopian highlands. But the Blue Nile is subject to the tremendous monsoonal rains which fall in the Ethiopian highlands. And it's the rains of Ethiopia that produced, in, all the way up until the 20th century, the flooding of the Nile, which, period, which occurred every year. The Nile floods would come down in, in late summer, and uh, flood the whole uh, valley of the lower Nile. And then, of course, with the rejuvenated soil, the mud that was dropped and the water which soaked in, they would put in their crops in the, in the late summer and fall. And uh, it, was, it was just a tremendous way for agriculture to continue without needing fertilizer and uh, dams and irrigation systems and all this kind of thing. Not that they did no irrigation in the Nile Valley, but at least there was this natural That happened because of the monsoonal rains which fell in the Ethiopian highlands. The Blue Nile will fluctuate 60-fold from its lowest level to its highest level, whereas the White Nile flows steadily all year round at almost exactly the same volume. So it was the Blue Nile which produced that flooding and dictated when they could plant their crops. So, So Egypt wasn't subject to this famine in terms of the lack of rainfall in Egypt itself, as long as the rains were falling in East Africa. Now, as conditions worsened, we're told that Abram knew something had to be done or he might lose his herds. He may have consulted Sarai about this. Scripture doesn't say there is no indication that he consulted God. He didn't build an altar, at least the scripture does not tell us, that he built an altar and now called upon the name of the Lord, what shall I do? It seems the feeling from this is, and from what happens afterwards, is that he decided in his own mind that this is the thing to do. Maybe consulting his wife, maybe not. After all, he was the patriarch of the clan. He didn't have to consult anybody. Now, we could call him a great nomadic sheik. And as he lived in Canaan, and as he passed by the little towns, and he passed the small tribes, he had no fear of them for the most part because his household was large, and he had many warriors, at least we discovered that in chapter 14, that were attached to his household. And so he wasn't intimidated by these small groups who lived in Canaan. Canaan was not unified apparently, at this time. But Egypt's a different story. He's moving into a land which was a unified nation. Now, it's true. Middle Kingdom Egypt was not as highly unified as was Old Kingdom or New Kingdom. But Middle Kingdom Egypt still was much stronger than Egypt in the two intermediate periods before and after the Middle Kingdom. It was sort of semi-feudal still, But the pharaoh was acknowledged as the leader of the whole land. And so he's moving into this powerful kingdom. And anybody who passed through the borders into Egypt was subject to the mercy of the pharaoh. In those days, you didn't have passports as you have today. You didn't have, uh, you know, the ability to say, I'm a, 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 a citizen of this country and you better treat me well. You're just at the mercy of the pharaoh if you passed into his land. And he could care less where you came from or who you were. You were under his authority as you passed into his land. Interesting point. At least it's interesting to me, and, and maybe to you too. Did Abram see the see the pyramids? Did he move into that portion of Egypt so that he could see the pyramids? Probably. At least, probably. Sorry, he did. Whether Abram did or not. And it's interesting to note that the, that the pyramids, the great pyramids at what is today called Giza, were already 600 years old. hundred years older than the times has passed since Columbus discovered America relative to our time. And we think of anything, whoa, that's old, right? <laughs> but of course the pyramids were very young at that point. They're now 4,600 years old, at least the biggest of them are. Thus, from the human point of view, it might seem, as, Pharaoh, as Abram moved into Pharaoh's land, that he was placing all that God had promised in extreme jeopardy. Remember what God had promised? We, we read it in, in the first part of chapter 12. Uh, he, he said, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. This was God's promise to him, indicating he would have offspring, that he would raise up a nation to his name. And now he is moving into a situation where that could all be jeopardized. I don't think he saw that at the moment. Undoubtedly, he was doing what he thought was the only logical thing to do. There's no food here, there's food in Egypt, let's go to Egypt. And so they went to Egypt. Now, ever try to visualize what a trek from the Negev to Egypt might be like? The northern part of the Sinai is not exactly uh, the Garden of Eden. It may have been somewhat different 4,000 years ago from what it is today. But nevertheless, it was a land through which he had to move fairly quickly and soon, because if this famine was increasing in intensity, uh, the water holes and the grasses available in the northern Sinai could also disappear, and it would be an impossible journey to make across the 200 miles from the Negev to the the delta of the Nile River. The passage doesn't tell us where in Egypt he settled. But it seems quite obvious. If you can picture in your mind, does, does that map show the Nile Delta? Primitive. Primitively, yes. As, as he moved over there to the west, some uh, commentators will say he moved over probably close to Zone. Now, Zone is not on there. That was in the uh, delta of the Nile near the Mediterranean on the east side of the delta. It could be, however, that he moved closer to what you see on there as Memphis. Now, north of Memphis on the east side of the river was On, O-N, or Heliopolis, as it's also known, which was uh, sort of a temple city of the ancient Egyptians. And it's very possible he moved close to that city. We don't know. Chances are he stayed somewhere on the east side of the Nile Delta. Whether near the Mediterranean or closer to Memphis, we don't know. But uh, since Memphis was the capital of Middle Kingdom, at least one of the capitals of Middle Kingdom, it's very possible that he moved somewhere in the neighborhood of Memphis, so that Pharaoh's officers would spot Sarah and be taken with her. And sure enough, I'm sure Abraham said, I told you so. The Egyptians were told, saw the woman, that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officers certainly authorities of the government to find out who this guy was and what he was doing here and and what his plans were, and to check out his household and so forth to make sure that uh, they were going to be no threat to the regime in any way. And obviously, in so doing, they spotted Sorry. Now, why did Abraham, Abram as he's still called at this point, why did Abram feel threatened. Why did he feel that someone might kill him for his wife? He doesn't seem to be fearful of that in Canaan. It's obvious he knew something about the Egyptians. Not from direct contact, but from hearsay. He knew something about the Egyptians. Certainly he knew they were polytheists, as they have always been, until at least after the birth of Christ, when a Christian church did develop there. And of course, later on, they became predominantly Mohammedan. But for most of history, they were polytheists, and they worshiped many gods. And those of you who have been in the tombs in Egypt, or you've seen uh, pictures of the papyri and other things, you've seen all of these different gods and goddesses that they worshiped in Egypt. They, they had a, a hierarchy of gods and goddesses, much like the ancient Greeks had. In fact, there were a lot of similarities between Greek and Egyptian gods and goddesses and their thought patterns. Now, whether that's just Satan's commonality here or whether the Egyptians influenced the Greeks, it's hard to tell. We know there was ancient intercourse commercially between the Greeks, the Greek world, and the Egyptian world. But, you know, the sun was always, one, if not the principal god of Egypt. But there were many other gods and goddesses. Unfortunately, some of them have been lionized even today, like on, I don't know if they still have it, but they used to have on television and cartoon having to do with Isis. Now, Isis is, is, was uh, an Egyptian goddess of uh, great importance uh, because it was her husband, Osiris, who, who reenacted the um, resurrection scenario. And, and her son, Horus, who was basically the symbol of the Pharaoh. And so what, what all did, did Abram understand about this? Well, certainly he knew they were polytheistic and they, they didn't honor the God that he knew. And he also knew that polygamy was widely practiced there. And he also knew that often with their religious practice went sexual activity sexual perversions and prostitution connected with their religion. And so this, of course, struck fear into his heart. And then also he knew that the pharaoh and many of his high officials all possessed harems. And the pharaoh was a powerful man. Now, of course, to an Egyptian family, to have a daughter inducted into the harem was a wonderful thing. Because look what the pharaoh did for Abram here. He gave him him great gifts. And so for a family to be so blessed as to have their daughter go into the pharaoh's harem, they would receive many gifts and honor from the pharaoh. And so to an Egyptian family, this would be a great honor, except not necessarily to the woman inducted. Not that she wouldn't be given a good lifestyle and considerable prestige, but she would be one amongst many. If she had any vision in her own eyes of a family, of being a mother and, and having a normal family situation, or being near her relatives, she had to forget all that if she was taken into the harem of the Pharaoh. And so it must have been a fearful thing to consider this. Abram was acting in a totally selfish manner, was he not? I mean, when you read that passage uh, there in uh, verse, verses 11 through 13. See now that you are a beautiful woman. Now the Hebrew here means beautiful of appearance. And that, and, and it will come about the Egyptians will see you. When the Egyptians see you, that they will say, this is his wife and they'll kill me for you. So please say that you're my sister. So it'll go well with whom? Me. Did he ever think what would happen to sarah I mean so he's saved. What what great deal is that? I mean the one through whom the promise was to be fulfilled would be carried off into the harem of the Pharaoh. So long sorry. Now there are flattering words as he speaks to his wife. See now I know that you are a beautiful woman. I'm sure she was flattered by that. But she shouldn't have been flattered by what he said after that. I mean she was no dummy. And I think she well understood. But she didn't resist. She didn't say no. And she went along with his plan. He was sacrificing his wife for his own safety. I don't think we'd exactly call that a gallant act on the part of this great man of God who would later be called the friend of God. There's great hope in Scripture, is there not? As we read, you know, some people read Scripture as, you know, God's pounding on everybody. I mean, we read these passages, and and how many times has David been brought as an example of a man who sinned greatly, and yet God loved him, and God blessed him, and God called him the apple of his eye. What an apple. I mean, that apple had a lot of worms in it obviously that's not what he meant. He didn't mean apple like the fruit. Uh, He's talking about the actual eye itself. But nevertheless, what a man of God. You know, we sometimes have this perverted view of what a, a man or a woman of God is. Somebody up on a pedestal in shining armor who has never done a sinful act in their lives. You know, sort of we get impacted by this saint view as it's perverted by some of the churches in our land and around the world, where saints are considered to be people who did so many good deeds that it overthrew their bad deeds, and, and they've got, an, there's a treasury of merit up there. And they put, pla- packed all these good deeds in this treasury of merit, and you and I, us poor people, can call upon that treasury of merit somehow for ourselves. Well, the Scripture says no such thing. Scripture teaches us exactly the opposite. The, the greatest saint was an awful sinner. And nobody attains the, uh, God's blessing without the forgiveness of God for the awful way we have been and, and lived. The only perfect one ever to walk this planet, of course, is Jesus Christ. And everybody else has been so far from him as to be out of sight. I don't care the greatest saint you can point out. It, it, to me, it's, it's really interesting to study church history And and you read the lives of some of the great saints like St. Augustine and and St. Jerome and St. Benedict and and St. Dominic and some of these, and you read their lives and you find these guys were cruddy characters, you know? but for the grace of God, they were saved. But for the grace of God, they wouldn't have been saved. (laughs) This passage, I think, teaches us clearly that when a person takes matters into his own hands and ceases to trust in the God whom he has just professed and proclaimed to everybody who has just months before manifested himself in visual form, who ceases to trust that God to take him through hard times, will inevitably compromise himself morally, ethically, and spiritually as Abram did here. And we dare not sit here and say, but I would never do that. I'm a far greater spiritual giant than to do something as stupid as that. Well, think about it for a minute. It won't take very long before Abram does it all over again. Have you ever had to learn the same lesson twice, thrice, four times, ad infinitum it seems? Doesn't it keep reminding us of the words of Jesus to Peter when he said, oh Lord, how many times should I forgive my neighbor when he sins against me? Seven times? you know. It makes it sound like he's really magnanimous there. And Jesus basically says, no, there is no end to the number of times you must continue to forgive that one. And if that's what is incumbent upon us, what is God's relationship to us? Where does God's mercy end? For the contrite heart, it never does. It never does. Now, what have they done? They have told a half truth, whatever that is. Let me read again from Genesis 20, verse 2. He gets involved in this all over again, believe it or not. And Abram said of his wife, of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Oh, what a dummy. Verse 12. It it comes out in the open and, Besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. (laughs) See, he's arguing that the basic truth is she is my sister. But, of course, true, she did become my wife. The wife position superseded the half-sister position, but he made it like that wasn't so. She was first and foremost my half-sister and, of course, by extension, also my wife. I mean, talk about begging the truth. Charles Spurgeon, who writes wonderful commentaries and little uh, interesting tidbits relative to basically all of Scripture, Concerning this, he says, to say that she was his sister was part of the truth, but the intention was to deceive. Whether what we say be true or not, if our object is to mislead others, we are guilty of falsehood. Let us pray for grace to be strictly truthful. In other words, we can tell the truth But if in telling the truth we are intending to deceive someone, it is still a lie. There's one order of individuals who believes that if you think the truth, you can tell a lie and it's okay before God. As long as you're thinking the truth. Talk about situation ethics. Talk about perverting God's word to fit what you want to do. Now, we're reminded, are we not? What did God said to Abram? He said, I will bless you. I'm going to make of you a great nation, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And yet he feared for his safety. He was afraid they might kill him. In other words, he was doubting God's word, and that's the place where sin comes. Is it not? What happened in Eden? Satan tempted Eve, she doubted God's word, and sin came. Abram doubts God's word, sin comes. If we hang fast to the word of God, we're kept by his power. But when we doubt its truth, we are tempted to sin and to fail as Abram did. He was about to learn a great lesson but as I've already noted, and if you, as you already know from reading Scripture, he will have to learn it again, just eight chapters later. Can you imagine how humiliating it would be to this man if he knew, at the time it was happening, that these things were going to be recorded for all people to read? <laughs> now, we've all thought oh, it'd be terrible if the thoughts of my mind for, let's say, one week were all put on a big billboard, and everybody who walked by could read everything I thought for the course of a week. It's scary, you know, because we are still walking around in the flesh. And, and we're striving, hopefully, to walk in the way God wants us to walk, but hey, we keep deviating. I mean, we, we really broaden that path. <laughs> the straight and narrow, we kind of, you know, we're kind of running off the side all the time. So here Abram has <laughs> this broadcast here for all the world. I'm sure today it's okay with him, because he's with the Lord, he's, he's, the, he's perfected, and one day he'll be given that, that perfect body that will all be given. And so I, he's not concerned, but in the flesh he would have been concerned, I'm sure, to know that millions and millions and maybe billions of people would know all about this... Uh, This is a very ungallant act. Now, it's important to note, he did not become a great man of faith overnight. This is so important for us to remember because we live in a day when there are people who call themselves Christians who go around basically teaching that great spiritual action can happen to us instantaneously and we we can make giant leaps of faith. And as you read the scripture, you don't find that to be the case. It's a long, slow, arduous task of walking. uh, Read Pilgrim's Progress, if you will, again. It was a hard task to become a man of faith. Through decades of walking with God, he learned from his failures, we learn from his failures, we learn from our failures, hopefully. At the moment of our new birth, God doesn't step in and and inject a gigantic clump of faith so that we walk around as great men and women of faith. And we don't have a later encounter with God where suddenly we leap ahead quantum, quanta. Yeah, we can have encounters of God where we meet him in a new way and where we, we take a step forward, but that's part of the journey. And we don't leap over all this space here spiritually speaking. And it's like, some of us would like to, you know, I'd like to learn a language by just having it injected into my mind, and I could speak Spanish perfectly without having to study it, or French, or German, or whatever else, or Russian, or Chinese. You know, that would be wonderful. It's true, some people have greater facility than others, and some people walk the road of faith quicker than others. But Paul tells us, that all who run win regardless of whether one runs faster or one runs slower it's to run that's important our faith is built by years of trials of blessings of successes and failures let me read from 1st peter chapter 1 verse 6 1st peter chapter 1 verse 6 In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now, you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Is that true for us? Do we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory right now here this morning? Even though we don't see him, there's no theophany in our midst. God isn't appearing now in, in a flaming angelic form? speaking with a thunderous voice or even a still small voice that's audible to the human ear. But we believe in him. As Jesus said to Thomas, yes, Thomas, you've put your hand in my side and in my, my hand, and you believe, but blessed are those who never have seen and yet will believe. And you and I are that generation and one of the many generations about whom that was true. Trials and blessings, successes and failures. That's the way we walk every day. Anybody here who's never had a failure? Anybody who's never had a trial? It's part of our lives. And sometimes it's frustrating because we feel like we've taken two steps forward and uh, wasn't it Swindoll who says three steps backwards or we slip three steps back? Sometimes we feel like that. But you know, if you could step back and look at your life... As we're looking at Abram's life right now, you will see that there's a general upward trend, spiritually speaking. We are growing in grace. We are learning. We are becoming stronger, even though at the moment we we may berate ourselves for our failures. And we we go before God and we say, Oh, Lord, I have failed again. You you, you almost, well, you're ashamed. Do that. And so, I'm sure, would be Abram, not only now, but when it happens again. Now, just as he feared, the Egyptians were very impressed by Sari. So much so were they impressed with her beauty that the word got to Pharaoh. He said, "Whoa, bring her on." Now, whether Pharaoh's agents understood it or not, They probably didn't. They were impressed with her physical beauty. That's what the passage says. They were impressed with her physical appearance. Now, how old was she? About 65. Now, she will not even bear her first child, or her only child, until she's 90. So, obviously, she's an unusual woman. And and she would live to be 140-something or other, so she's still not halfway there yet. She's an unusual person. And, And Dr. Brown mentioned last Sunday, well, maybe Pharaoh was an older man. And, you know, he was attracted to this older woman. Well, that may be. But these agents of the Pharaoh were impressed. And we're not told they're older men either but maybe they were taking that in consideration. I don't know. But there was another beauty here that they probably didn't see, the beauty of her person. She was a very beautiful woman inside. And Scripture alludes to this in other passages. But I'd like to read at this point a passage that we're familiar with, certainly from First Peter that deals with this concept here. That she not only was beautiful on the outside of face and form, but she was a beautiful person inside. And part of that beauty was the fact that she submitted to her husband's foolish request. Now some might say, well, that's being a doormat. No, I don't think she was being a doormat. She was being what she felt under God she should be in spite of his foolishness. And I think she may have been trusting the Lord to preserve her more than Abram was. Look at verse 3 of 1 Peter 3. Let not your adornment be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses. Now, it doesn't say you shouldn't do that, does it? It just says don't let that be the only thing that makes a person beautiful. But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, the, in former times, holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. This seems to imply directly That she was walking in faith, doing what was right when she was taken into the harem. Not that she should be taken into the harem, but she was doing what was right in her attitude towards her husband. And God honored that. And so within her, she's using an example of this inner beauty. And we think, whoa, but later on, didn't she laugh at the angel of the Lord when he said she'd have a son? Well, what about Abraham? Abraham. What about, I mean, you, name the great man or woman of faith that you read about in Scripture. They all failed. They all failed. But Scripture attests to this woman as being an example of what a godly woman should be. That doesn't mean that you today have to go around calling your husband Lord. you know, But it's the attitude of being in, in submission under God as she was. Well, Sarai is taken in to the harem. I think it's very important for us, and we better better stop at this point, and we'll pick it up next week, but it's very important for us to note something. The implication of this passage of Scripture is that Pharaoh laid not a hand on her. Although she was taken into the harem, it wasn't like, take her into the harem, and tonight, the very first night, she's with the pharaoh. No, she had to be prepared for the pharaoh. There was a process through which she had to go to become a literal woman of the harem, and thus ultimately be brought to pharaoh. And God wouldn't intervene. She was not polluted by pharaoh. And I think that's, again, God's honoring this woman's great faith in spite of her husband's folly.